All right, we come now to our text for today, and it's found in Hebrews chapter 7. And as you're getting there, I'll remind you we've been in chapter 7 for a little while, and the themes of chapter 7 we've been looking at even longer than we've been in this chapter. But it's this mysterious figure of Melchizedek. And uh, the argument this author is getting to, our inspired author is getting to, is that Christ is greater than Levi. He's greater than Aaron. He's the greatest high priest. We can go through a long list of superlatives given about him, that he's greater than all of those shadows or types that we find in the Old Testament because he is their antitype. They terminate in him. They lead to him. They point to him. He is their fulfillment. And so we come and see that the same is true of Levi. Levi was a great priest, and he founded a line of great priests. But the truth is, it's of no comparison to Christ. Christ is greater as high priest. In fact, he's not even of the same order because he is of so much greater estate. He is of the order of Melchizedek. And we spoke about how Melchizedek's this mysterious figure that's just barely mentioned in Genesis 14. We might even overlook him. Hopefully we wouldn't. We would notice there's something unusual about him given to us in that text. But, but there he is, this mysterious king priest of, the, of God Most High. There he is, just these few verses. And yet so much is to be made of that. He disappears from the scene until Psalm 110, where David declares, right, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that the Messiah will be this priest after the order of Melchizedek. He'll be a high priest, but not according to that of Levi, but according to that of Melchizedek. And so we see there this important thing that's stated. It will come back in the text yet again today. Uh, Our author wants us to always keep in mind Psalm 110 and what is said there. But Melchizedek is clearly greater than Aaron. We've been looking at that for the last two weeks, haven't we? That this author says it's not hard to piece together when you look at the text of Genesis. Because what do we see there? Abraham shows a deference, if you will, to Melchizedek, doesn't he? He pays a tithe to Melchizedek. He receives a blessing from Melchizedek. And as we talked about in covenantal terms, that means that Aaron or Levi also did the same. Because Abraham is their head in the making of that covenant. And so Levi, in Abraham's loins, does what Abraham does. If Abraham recognizes the greater state of the priesthood of Melchizedek, that means that Levi, covenantally speaking, in Abraham, also recognizes the greater state of Melchizedek. And so that is where we've been looking at it, particularly last Sunday, that it's clear that Melchizedek is of a greater state of priestliness or has a higher authority, a higher priesthood than that of Levi. So again, all of that leads to a couple of important things that we need to look at. First of all, there was a promise given in Psalm 110. There was a promise given. In fact, our author today will say it's not just a promise, but it's a promise and an oath. And that'll refer us back to chapter 6. We'll come to that. His point was, if Aaron, or the Levitical priesthood, was enough, then why would God promise that the Messiah would be of a different priesthood? If the Levitical Old Testament priesthood was enough, then why say that the Messiah would come according to a different priesthood? So again, he points out what? That the Levitical priesthood was not sufficient. It was not God's ultimate goal or plan. It was part of his plan. But Christ, as the Melchizedekian priest, is the plan. And the Old Testament Levitical priesthood is but a shadow or a type 
of Christ's priesthood, which is its antitype. It is what it points to, what Levi points to. So that's one of the first things that we want to see. Second of all, if there's a change of priesthood, there is necessarily a change of law. Now, we could see that in covenantal terms. The Old Covenant had the Levitical priesthood. This Melchizedekian priesthood ministers in the New Covenant in Christ. So that's clear. But our author says, I'll give you one example of this. Where in the law of Moses is it allowed that anyone can minister at the altar except a Levite? And yet, what we read in this history is that Christ is not a Levite, but of the order of Judah, of the tribe of Judah. So again, necessarily, if God accepts him as a high priest, he cannot be under the old law. Now again, he's tying together the priesthood and the law. If the priesthood has changed, the law has necessarily changed. For the law given in Moses did not permit what is now acceptable unto God. Because again, this Melchizedekian priesthood supersedes the Levitical priesthood. That's the entire point. And third, there is a fundamental difference in priesthood. A fundamental difference between them. The priesthood of Levi was passed down generation to generation. A high priest dies, another one takes his place. And that was according to the commandment of God. But we see in the Melchizedekian priesthood is it is authorized by the power of endless life, eternal life. There is no passing of the guard from one priest to another. Christ is the high priest of this order. There is no one to succeed him. He is the eternal and perfect high priest of this order. And therefore, it's a more effectual priesthood. So all of this is given to us. And then finally, we want to look at this. There was a weakness, and we saw this at the end of our text last week. It's in verse 19. In fact, in verses 18 and 19, because it says, On the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment. The, the former law is not in force here. But he says this, It's because they were bringing a better hope. And what was that better hope brought through? An effectual priesthood. He says the law made nothing perfect. The law had no ability to perfect. We'll talk a little bit more about that today. But it was weak and unprofitable, this author says. This inspired author says that of the old covenant priesthood. Because it was never its purpose to perfect. It always dealt with a weakness. And therefore pointed to its antitype, its perfection in Christ. Christ is the high priest that the Old Testament points to. That's why Paul says the end of the law is Christ Jesus. Right? The law says look to Jesus, look unto Jesus. In fact, all of Scripture says look unto Jesus. This author will say, look unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And so again, we see it over and over again. So now we come to a couple of more things that need to be addressed here about Melchizedek and about this greater priesthood. And this is at the heart of what this letter is about. So let's look at our verses again quickly. And inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath or outside of an oath, he was made priest through an oath. For they have become, meaning the Old Testament priesthood, they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. 
For such a high priest was fitting for us or needed for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once and for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness. But the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. Amen. As we look at this text today, we want to consider two more things about this priesthood. And the next week, we'll close out the the rest of these verses in chapter 7 and come to really the heart of the letter, which is chapter 8. But today, I want us to look at, first of all, an oath offered, and second of all, a surety offered, because these are both really important concepts in Hebrews and really in biblical theology in general. So looking first at this offered oath, you know, we've said much about the importance of the Melchizedekian priesthood, the greatness of it, and this inspired author wants to say much more about it. He has from the very beginning, he says, of of much we have to say about this, but you're not ready for it. And now, as he launches into it, he proves he had much to say about it. You can imagine, as he first mentions Melchizedek, you might think, well, there's a few verses, three verses or so in Genesis, what could you say about him? And this author continues and continues and continues, and he does so again. He returns where? Psalm 110, where he's returned over and again. uh, One of the most important scriptures in the Old Testament. It's used over and over. In fact, the most quoted scripture from the Old Testament used in the New Testament. So he returns there again, and what do we find? We find something very important. And he wants us to look at it slightly different. He's focused on many words here before, like, you are a priest forever. Order of Melchizedek, these things he, have, he has pointed to. But notice now today, he wants us to focus on the first part of it. The Lord has sworn, sworn, and will not relent. Now, author wants us to see immediately that is not the language simply of promise. It is language of promise. God is declaring something that will come to pass. There will be a messianic high priestly king of the order of Melchizedek, this shall come to pass, that is a promise. But he even goes further than that, doesn't he? Because he swears an oath. It says the Lord has sworn, and then in case you're not clear that sworn means an oath, he says, and will never relent, will never change his mind. This must come to pass. No question about it. Now, we spoke about the kind of Strange thing of God swearing or, or saying that I will not take it back. Because again and again, we know God's word stands. Paul says in Romans, it's not, as if, it's not as if the word of God fails to stand, right? God's word stands. So why would he make an oath? Well, I would remind you, turn back just to the previous chapter. And back in May, we had a sermon on this very passage. But in Hebrews 6, 17 and 18, listen to what it says. God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of the promise the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. Now, what was this in reference to? It was in reference to Abraham and the promise made to Abraham. And then there's this incredible scene at Mount Moriah. Right, where he takes his son, the, the son has been a promise from God, and takes him up ready to, to offer him as a sacrifice. And God intervenes in that. 
and says, you know, do not lay a hand upon this son, for now I know you withhold nothing from me. And all of these things that are wrapped up in that, and that God provides a sacrifice for himself, an incredibly important type, if you will, there again, foreshadowing of uh, what God is at work to do, because Abraham says, God himself will provide the sacrifice, which is absolutely true, isn't it? But we learn in Hebrews, we've not gotten there yet, we learned in Hebrews that Abraham said, even if I sacrifice this son of promise, God must necessarily keep his word, that through this son the promise will be kept, which our author in this letter tells us meant that Abraham said, even if I sacrifice Isaac, God must necessarily raise him from the dead. Not because Abraham has any authority over God, but because he knows God's word must come to pass. God's word must come to pass. If he said, through Isaac shall the seed be counted, through Isaac this promise will be kept, then Isaac must live. Right? If you believe the word of God, then what do you conclude? If he demands that I sacrifice Isaac, Isaac will be raised from the dead. And that's what Abraham reckoned. And God then gives an oath, gives an oath. But this author says, what was the purpose of that oath? Was it anything lacking in the promise of God? Of course not. God's word is sure, it's perfect, it will stand. Was it really necessarily for Abraham? Doesn't seem to be. Abraham seemed to believe the promise, didn't he? The promise was good enough for Abraham. He said, God has made this promise, God will keep his promise. The oath was given for us. Because God knows the weakness in us as human beings. Our doubts are shaking, are moving to and fro. Listen, it says it very clearly in that text we just read. God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of the promise, the immutability of His counsel, God desiring to show us by saying, look, I didn't just promise it, but I've confirmed it in an oath. There is no question, this shall come to pass. And notice that it's written here that we might have strong consolation. Consolation. We might be consoled in times where we need consolation. When we have our doubts or our troubles, we can turn and say, God didn't just promise it. He confirmed it with an oath. Now, it doesn't really make the promise any more secure, does it? The promise is enough. But the oath is given to say, look, weak human beings who are easily swayed, easily fall into a need for consolation. Here is the word that I'm given. It wasn't a weakness in the promise. It was a weakness in us. Now, there are oaths given again and again in the Scriptures, and again for that same purpose. Now, there are three oaths that we've been looking at in Hebrews. The first one is a point the author labored, and I know I labored over and over again, but it was important, which was the, the oath given in the wilderness to a generation, right? Here was a generation of people outside the promise, and the oath was, they shall not ever enter my rest. It was an oath. I'm telling you, there's a promise. They will not enter my rest. But more than that, I'm making an oath. I will declare it. They shall not enter my rest. Guess what this author says? They did not enter his rest. They did not enter his rest. And then there's another oath given here to Abraham. And we see again there is a promise made and then an oath confirming it that it is through Isaac that these promises will be kept and that there will be a seed who will come. And guess what? God kept his word. God kept His word. And then there's this third oath given, that there will be a priest, and he will be of a greater order than that of Levi, and it will be the messianic 
a king priest, and his name will be Jesus. And guess what? God kept his word. Here is the evidence of it. Christ Jesus is our effectual high priest. These O's, I think, are there to signal to us those things that are important. Why is it important to think about those three points in Hebrews? If you're outside the promise, you will not enter rest. Outside of this promise that, that God has given, that's this Abrahamic covenant, that is how God will fulfill this promise. And furthermore, that He will be a priest, not of Levi, but of Melchizedek. A different priesthood, a different covenant, if you will. Not a covenant of works, but a covenant of grace. These are key to understanding biblical theology. God says, how can I signal it more strongly to you than to say this, I give an oath that these things will come to pass. That oath is like an attention getter for us. It should be. If God is oathing something, if He is declaring and swearing something, then He's saying this is of great importance to you. Listen and recognize it, understand it, hear it and heed it. Because all these are types that correspond in a necessary antitype. Right? The, the wilderness is not really about those who died in the wilderness, is it? It's about those who die outside the promise. They're a picture, a warning to the people being written to here. That's the point we were making all along, wasn't it? It's really to say, look unto them. They were not a part of the promise. They were in rebellion against God. They showed it over and again, and they did not enter rest. And this author says, likewise, if you are like them, you shall not enter rest. God has declared it, and He has sworn it. And furthermore, we see these antitypes of the Levitical priesthood and this promise that is fulfilled not in Isaac, finally, but in Christ, who is the singular seed, Paul says in Galatians. So again, as we look at all of this, we begin to recognize the importance of these O's. This priest is appointed, just as all priests were appointed, but he's appointed in a different way. He's appointed not by the command of God. God gave the commandment in the Old Testament in Exodus to appoint a priesthood. He told Moses, here's what you're to do. And Moses obeyed. That's by the command of God. But notice he says something is different about this. Look at it again. He says in verse 20, And inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, that's a strange way of wording that, isn't it? But he says, Christ was not made a priest outside of an oath. In other words, that's like saying Christ was made a priest with an oath. But notice the, the other statement that's made there. For they, meaning the Old Testament priesthood, have become priests without an oath. God did not make an oath about them. He did not give them an oath, did not make a declaration for them. But with an oath, He did make Christ high priest. Now again, why does that matter? The very thing we were just talking about. An oath is a signification of the importance of an act. God in giving an oath is saying to us, look here, <laughs> look at this, look at what I'm doing. I've sworn there's something important about this high priest. There's something he can accomplish that Levi could never accomplish. Something that he can accomplish that Aaron could never accomplish. See, that's what he's talking about at the end of the previous section. The law made nothing perfect. It was not perfect itself. And by the way, it wasn't perfect in perfecting because it wasn't God's intention that it would be perfect in perfecting. 
It also had a weak priesthood, a priesthood of men with all their failings and faults. But our priest is perfect. We see in all of this, this oath signals the importance of this priesthood. God commanded the Levitical priesthood, but He made an oath when it came to Christ's priesthood. And that brings us to a second, our second point this morning, which was the appearance or giving of surety. And it's important to realize this because, praise God, He accomplished something in Christ that could not be accomplished outside of Christ. Right? The law could not perfect us. What does it mean? You couldn't be saved by the law. No matter how well you thought you could keep it, you could not be saved by the law. God didn't give the law for that end. Now, how do we know that? Because ultimately, we are in Adam before the law was ever given. We stand condemned before there ever was a law. Right? The law was given to reveal to us our sinful nature. But if the law had been given and you perfectly kept it, you were still at fault in Adam. Now, that's a theoretical point because you couldn't perfectly keep it. That's the entire point that's made over and over. The law could not perfectly be kept because it did not empower us to keep it. But our condemnation exists before the law in Adam. In Adam. The law was given that we might recognize our sinfulness might recognize our need of a Savior, might recognize God's holiness, His righteousness, and many other things that the law included. That's not our purpose this morning. But notice there's something that's said over and over in this letter about the law. It could not perfect us. It could not perfect us. God never gave it for that purpose. It could not perfect us. Now, if you look at verse 22, there's something that He wants to say about this. He's in... By so much more, he has become a surety of a better covenant. A surety, and in guos, a surety or guarantor of a better covenant or a guarantor of it. Think about that for a moment. Now, immediately we would see a difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. Now, by the way, some, some people will say, well, that word really is pointing to mediator. But it's, I don't believe that's true. This author uses the word mediator over and over again. Here he didn't choose to use that word. He chose to use guarantor. Now why is that? Well, there was was a mediator of the Old Covenant, right? Moses mediated the giving of the Old Covenant, as did angels, according to this author. There was a mediator all through the Old Covenant given, the high priest under the order of Levi. There was a mediator all along. But what there wasn't was a guarantor. How do we know that? Because the law was broken over and over. You had to give sacrifices over and over again without end. It isn't just Yom Kippur, right? That is clearly an example. Every year, Yom Kippur, the sacrifice had to be given again and again. But there were daily sacrifices that had to be given again and again and again without end. Nowhere in Levitical priesthood would there ever be a time that the sacrifices would come to an end. Because no one was ever perfected by it. There was always a further need. It was never complete. Tomorrow's a new day to offer sacrifices. Another day where we need this mediator acting on our behalf in the temple, giving sacrifices. And every year on Yom Kippur made completely evident that the people need an oblation made on their behalf. And so we see that was the nature of it. That's what the author said when he said that nothing was made perfect by it. It never came to an end. It was never finished, never complete. But that's different now, isn't it? 
Under Christ, it is not the same because He has completed the work. He has finished the work. He is the guarantor. Why? Well, as our mediator and guarantor, He has supplied us the righteousness that we need. It's not my righteousness. It's not your righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness. In other words, in the work that He did in saving us, we are taken out of Adam and placed in Christ. He now becomes our federal head, right? He becomes the one in whom we stand. And that means it's not about my failings. It's about His perfection, His grace, His perfect righteousness. I don't stand in my own righteousness, which can never be perfect. I stand in His, the, the reformers use the term externos, right? An external righteousness, a righteousness that is not mine. It is Christ's righteousness. I stand in that. Well, guess what? That is sufficient, perfectly sufficient. And therefore, I have no need of a sacrifice made again tomorrow or the next day or next week or next Yom Kippur. I have the once and for all sacrifice of Christ that is availed for me. Now, we can point to many things. This is a huge problem with Catholicism, isn't it? Because we have to have the Mass every week, right? We have to have the Mass every week, a new sacrifice of Christ constantly. Well, that isn't what biblical theology says. That would mean nothing is ever perfected unless that next Mass is offered. But what our author says here is, no, it has been finished in Christ. We have a new standing that perfectly avails forevermore. I think as we get a little bit further, he says he is able to save to the uttermost. We read that a moment ago, didn't we? He means to save without failing. Not to save in part, but to save in whole. Completely saved. And that means our standing does not change. It isn't altered by circumstance. If we are in Christ, we are declared righteous before God. That's what we looked at last week with Romans 5, right? We now have peace with God. That is not a temporary peace that shifts and changes like the world's definition of peace where we can be at peace with a nation today and at war with them tomorrow. No, this is a permanent declaration of being made right with God through Christ Jesus. So Christ not only mediates on our behalf before our Father, but He Himself offers us the necessary righteousness that we could never provide for ourselves. Now that's just the gospel, isn't it? That's what we preach every single Sunday here. That is the very definition of the gospel. The good news is that Christ has provided the way. He has provided the righteousness by His grace. Trust in Him. Stand in Him. And you stand before God reconciled. That's amazing grace. So this is what we're talking about. He's become our head and we stand in Him by grace. And He has guaranteed that standing. He has been made surety of that standing. There's no question about it. No doubt about it. Christ paid it all. Christ paid it all. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. We stand in Christ. He has given us surety by His grace through faith. And if we stand in that surety, we have a steadfast and secure anchor. That's what the author was talking about, isn't it? If we stand in Him, we have nothing to fear. We are anchored to Him behind the veil, behind the veil where nothing in this world can touch it. We are made right and at peace with God. We have been justified. And the entire point of that word, right, of being declared righteous or just before God, dikaiosune, is to say what? There's a change in status for us. 
a change in whom we stand. We no longer stand in Adam. We stand in Christ. That doesn't change. That doesn't change. So as we come to the end of this today, I want us to think about an obvious question. What's this author arguing? No matter what you try to accomplish by works, it is not sufficient. Because works can never avail before a holy and righteous God. Not our works. They're fallen. They're imperfect. But there was one who could avail in his work. And that's the person and work of Christ who went to Calvary's cross and gave the perfect sacrifice and offers it as the perfect high priest. All that the scriptures have pointed to point to him. He is the antitype that all those types pointed to. The law's purpose is to lead us to Christ. Its antitype is the new covenant of grace in Christ. And he's perfectly accomplished it. And it's effectual. That's the difference. The old covenant called you to a standard that you could not meet. That's given to us in scripture, isn't it? Paul said, by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Peter at the, at the Jerusalem council says, are we going to ask the Gentiles to take a yoke upon their neck that our fathers, that we or our fathers have been unable to bear? You see, the recognition here is that there is something different about the new covenant. What it requires, it supplies by the grace of God. God has transformed us and changed us, placed us into Christ. We stand in His righteousness. The righteousness that God demands is supplied for us by grace in Christ as we stand in Him. It's effectual. Notice those descriptions again of the old covenant. It was weak. This covenant is not weak. It is unprofitable. This covenant is profitable for those in it. And what else? The law made nothing perfect. This is a covenant which perfects those in it because we stand in Christ, justified and then sanctified, but ultimately glorified in Christ Jesus. Glorified, made perfect. So my friends, again, this morning, if you're hearing this and you have not trusted in Christ, you're trusting in your works, in what you can accomplish. You're trying to have God great on a curve. He does not do it. Perfect righteousness is what He demands. And it's available to us only in Christ. The perfect high priest, the perfect sacrifice, the perfect king, the perfect prophet. And so if the Holy Spirit is convincing you of that today, my friends, heed that call and trust in Christ.